Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard Ryerson here. Thank you for tuning in to Dose of Leadership. So happy that you're here. This is your great free resource in helping you become the leader that you were called to be. Let's face it, we're all called to leadership, and hopefully you're using Dose of Leadership as a great free resource in helping you along in that journey. Today, great conversation with Bill Sandbrook. Bill was a uh, U.S. Military Academy West Point graduate, spent 13 years in the U.S. Army, and eventually found himself out in the corporate world. It was always one of his goals to be a CEO, and he talks about how he began that journey after his career in the Army. He eventually found himself at U.S. Concrete, a company that was founded in the late 1990s, but they ran into a series of troubles. And uh, by 2010, they couldn't even service their debt, and it led them to filing for bankruptcy. That's when Bill came into the picture. Mr. Sandbrook, I guess, was around July 2011. And as he'll tell you in this conversation, it was a tough decision. The company wasn't very attractive. Bonuses hadn't been paid out in a long time. And it meant for him taking a significant pay cut. He'll talk about it here in this conversation. But what I found fascinating with this conversation with Bill was, again, the validation of what we talk about here in Dose of Leadership, that it's all about the people. He went on a listening tour, applied some common sense, and eventually turned the company around. And where he took over where the stock was trading less at $2 a share, I think this week, He's in over $80 a share. It's a fascinating story, but again, it's just chock full of common sense leadership that you can apply in your everyday leadership journey in life, and I know you're going to get some great leadership nuggets out of this conversation. This show is brought to you by my course, Legacy Leader Blueprint. I talk about it on every show, but it is the course that's going to help you defeat or begin defeating the stages of mediocrity, of stagnation in both your personal life and in your organization. I've been working with a lot of organizations in this, um, just starting a class of 13 uh, with a group um, across the globe, and we'll be starting a Legacy Leader Blueprint course, and it's might be perfect just for you at $349 a seat. It doesn't break the bank, and I'm flexible with the time so it doesn't eat into your busy schedule as well. But it is a course that will help you start creating those high-impact cultures of initiative and begin building empowered teams with high degrees of implicit trust. Here's a testimonial from one of my recent graduates of the course of Steve Trepper, a chief pilot with GSK Pharmaceuticals. And Steve says, and I quote about the course, I feel like I got 10 times my investment back. The Legacy Leader Blueprint course has truly changed my life in so many ways. I have benefited not only professionally, but personally as well. Richard is passionate, inspiring, and engaging when presenting the material. And if you want to experience what true leadership is, then learn from Richard. He is the best. Not only did I feel like I got 10 times the value in my investment, I also gained a friend and a confidant in my quest to becoming a better leader. This course is a must for any leader looking to improve. I appreciate that testimonial, Steve. You have become a good friend. And I'm so appreciative that you've been in a couple of my masterminds, including Legacy Leader Blueprint. And if you want to experience what Steve did, check out the course at my website, doseofleadership.com or legacyleaderblueprint.com or richardryerson.com. You can find it. Click on the links, sign up for the uh, free 20-minute video that will highlight the course and also give you the top secrets of leadership. 
and I look forward to hearing from you and seeing you in one of my future courses. All right, without further ado, great conversation with CEO Bill Sandbrook of U.S. Concrete. Well, Bill, I'm honored to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. All right, thanks, Richard. Pleasure to be here this morning. So I ask this almost on every veteran that's come on this show. I mean, I didn't realize how much the Marine Corps helped me in my leadership philosophy or any, any modicum of success I've had up to this point. I can directly attribute to my being an officer and a pilot in the Marine Corps. How much did your West Point career, your Army career help you in, uh, in your civilian sector? I think it helps significantly because, as you know, being a veteran, you're, you're giving large doses of responsibility at a, at a young age. So you're leading you're leading people right from the start of your of your formative years of your career. You get to learn by your mistakes. You get to learn by the mentors and officers you serve under. Uh, the military teaches you how to be decisive in in the uh, in the face of of some unsettling times. Uh, it also teaches you to to be able to dissect a, a diverse series of inputs that you're getting, some true, some false, uh, but from multiple different areas, things are coming at you and you have to sort sort out some clarity from that uncertainty and quickly chart a path forward. And I think that decisiveness is a, a very good characteristic to have out here in the business world. Yeah, I agree. I think decisiveness, I think, is one of if, if, if there are any young leaders or people aspiring for leadership, I think being decisive and making decisions with partial information is the biggest way you can differentiate yourself. Because to me, I think it's epidemic that people do not make uh, decisions in a timely fashion, right? And the key word is timely. I think a lot of times we're wait, we wait too long to make the perfect decision waiting for the perfect information, which is a myth. And I think that that ability to make Decisions with partial information is tantamount to, to success. What are your thoughts? No, I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, paralysis, paralysis through analysis is endemic. Let's get another study. It's endemic in government. Yeah. Let's get another study. Let, let's put together another commission. And, and it goes on and on and on, and nothing ever gets done. That's one of the problems with Washington. Exactly. Let's keep studying it and, and punt it down to the – to punt it down the down the field without ever really addressing the issue, so I, I agree with you that that decisiveness is very important, and and it, it distinguishes you from from your peers out there, and and your and your your subordinates learn from you because yeah. they're not used to that necessarily in the business world. I think that the moment that you can sit there and say, you know, I'm just not worried about being wrong, and I mean you're not you don't want to be wrong, you but you're just not worried about necessarily. Um, a wrong decision, or you're willing to accept the accountability of that decision. That's a, an, an excellent point. And, you know, you do have to take some risks out here. You do have to take some calculated risks. Um, and and you also have to, to learn by by sometimes your blind spots and have, have a setback or two and learn from that. And then in, in, in reflection, say, well, what did I miss in that situation? Right. But if you're not, if you're not willing to risk anything, you're not going to learn anything. Right. Exactly. So if I'm doing my math, right, you got out of the army, uh, early nineties, I guess, is that right? And I got um, 92. Yes. So what was the, what was the plan then? Or what was the dream when you got out, you got out and you said, Hey, I'm going to do what? Well, it, it's interesting. The dream actually started even before I entered the army. When I entered the army, I was I had a plan of either becoming a general officer 
or if my career path took me or my interests took me a different way or if fate took me a different way, I wanted to be CEO of a public company. So that was at, at graduation at age 21. Right. Uh, when I decided then that the, my path was going to diverge from the military in 1992, uh, I decided that I wanted to be a CEO of a public company and wanted to work not in a service industry, but work in an industry that we actually produce some tangible product and that I got to lead individuals in the accomplishment of that effort. So I wanted, I wanted to be able to touch something, build something and, and lead people. And I wasn't, it didn't really matter what actual industry it was. It was by happenstance that I came into this industry, which actually my father had grown up in the cement side. I'm not in cement. I'm in ready-mixed concrete. But I'd been around heavy materials and heavy industrial uh, companies from the time I was born. But I didn't plan on coming into this industry. It just happened that way. Right. But I wanted to touch a product, and I wanted to lead people. It's interesting when pe- – when, um, how many guests have said, I didn't know I was going to be doing what I'm doing now. And I'm curious about, and we'll get to, uh, I'm really interested about your, your, when you started this with this company and the turnaround that, that happened there. But I'm curious about this aspect of when doors of opportunity present themselves. And I was talking with my daughter about this yesterday, that I think that when whatever the opportunity is, even if it seems so unfamiliar that you should take it and 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 see where it leads. And it sounds like that's what happened to you. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. And the ability or the desire to do that really needs to be predicated on a sound foundation, a sound educational foundation Mm -hmm. in that, you know, an unending quest for, for knowledge or a thirst for knowledge Mm -hmm. in multiple disciplines, which can prepare you then for when that unexpected opportunity presents itself uh, I think is is critical to that thought process that you're describing to your daughter. I love that sentiment. You're absolutely right. It's like it's, and it almost begs the question: Can you teach somebody to be insatiably curious? Because I think if there's one thing that that you find in people that lead lives of significance, that they have this insatiable curiosity, and I think it's a choice. I don't know if in, some people say you're born with it or not. I just think it's. I, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on that from the, well, the curiosity piece? I, I'm not sure if it's a choice. I mean, you you have to you you have to embrace the things you don't know, and you have to have intellectual curiosity yeah. to go and seek that out and get some level of expertise in it, or at least a, at a minimum of an understanding of it. it. It makes much better senior executives, both in the military and in in the civilian world, where you're not just one functional expert. And that that really doesn't round you out enough for all of the things that are come that are going to come at you in a senior leadership role in this very complex world that we operate in right now. Mm-hmm. So you can't know enough about enough things, you know, at, at this stage of of a career or, or this at this position, you know, in at senior level leadership. I agree. That's that's sound advice. Are you a voracious reader? Uh, right now. <laughs> a, not as much in fiction and nonfiction books as I am in trade association, uh, industry specific, Wall Street Journal, general business. You know, there's just not enough time in the day actually to for my reading list to be satisfied. I'm afraid that's probably going 
going to have to be in my later years. <laughs> yeah, There's right. only so much time in the day. But you're on, you're constantly learning though. And I think you said, you know, having that humble teachable spirit is tantamount. That comes up time and time again on the show too. Having that, that intensity of will uh, coupled with this tremendous sense of, of humility and a teachable spirit is a great combination in my opinion. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. It just doesn't have to come from books. I mean, I learned something from every interaction. Yeah. I, I'll learn something from this conversation today. I'll, I'll learn something from my truck drivers. I'll learn something from, you know, the receptionist. I, any interaction I have, I, I won't probe and I won't be nosy, but I will learn something from every interaction. Yeah. Every interaction with another human being is an opportunity for growth and development for sure. I mean, even, you know, the cashier at the quickie mart, you know, there's something to learn from everybody and everything. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about this, this amazing story where, uh, I guess us concrete was founded in the late nineties. You came to the company, uh, when in 2011, is that right? August of 2011, um, about shortly under a year after it emerged from a prepackaged bankruptcy. And when you came there, what, what were we looking at? What describe the from from a morale and financial perspective? What what were you inheriting? Well, we had inherited from a financial perspective markets that had fallen by about seventy five percent in demand, depending on what uh, metropolitan area you were in. That is, that if a hundred thousand homes were being built in in Atlanta in a year, it was down to twenty thousand or less. And the capacity in the markets were set not only to meet the 100,000 level, but probably growth from there. So there was significant excess capacity in the markets, which put obvious obvious pressure on volumes, but significant pricing pressures, which drove the, the company into its, into its position. And really, in 2011, there weren't any green shoots at that point on a turnaround in the economy. So it was fairly somewhat of a hopeless situation. We, we can't sell anything and we can't raise prices. The banks are breathing down our neck. Um, we've laid off all the people we, we could lay off. We've sold off operations that we could sell off to some extent. And employees hadn't had raises in a number of years. The 401k uh, program had, had gone away. All of the uh, employees that had invested in an employee stock ownership plan prior to the bankruptcy, all of that investment was wiped out. And like I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, it was a, I was inheriting a, or walking into a, an area or a group that was just surviving. Mm -hmm. uh, they were glad to have a position. They, they didn't think that there was any future for the company. The board of directors, in fact, hadn't been completely forthcoming to me. I mean, one of their primary options was to liquidate the company. And that was never on – entered my my thought process not one time did i take this job thinking i was going to break it up and sell it in parts that i was going to be able to fix this uh fix it structurally fix fix the the morale fix the uh underlying uh, tactical and strategic problems and knowing that that recession wasn't going to go on forever that there would be some way shape or form of recovery if we could make it to that point so but the first thing we had to do was kind of let people know that they had hope and revel, revel in in small victories and try to get some semblance of 
of success under their belt so that they could have hope. And the primary one of the primary things I did when I first got here is is went on a listening tour for about the the bulk of the first 90 days because we have operations all the way from California to New York and our headquarters was in Houston and we didn't have any operations in Houston. So I didn't, I didn't spend much time at, at the headquarters. I went out into the field at our various locations and knowing that, that it was going to take a while to turn this around. I needed to, to find out what the employees, what, what their ideas were because the culture of the company was, was very centralized. Everything was directed out of corporate, but corporate really didn't have a sense of, of what could be done operationally. And there were a lot of silly operational decisions that were being made out of corporate that the, that the field had just uh, endured and then eventually tuned out to, to corporate. And what happens if you take response, if the corporate takes all the responsibility for decisions, the, the field abdicates the, the, the results of those decisions and have no ownership anymore. Right. And that, that's what we're facing. So I needed to turn that on its head. I need to listen to employees, take their advice, have, have them, they're, they're experts at what they do. It's just like, just like in the army. I mean, the sergeants, right. and the, the sergeants and the corporals and, and the privates know a lot more about the details of, of uh, an M1A1 tank than the than the general does at uh, you know in Heidelberg. Yeah. And 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 if if the equipment isn't working and you don't give them the tools to fix their equipment, then then what you're not going to have a good result. So I listened to I listened to the employees and it actually significantly empowered them and loosened the loosened their ability to make decisions and to commit commit money to spend money to fix equipment that wasn't fixed in order to to self-help our way out of a of a of a very dire um financial situation because they hadn't been allowed to fix their equipment but without fixing their equipment they couldn't produce effectively it was just a downward death spiral so you know belabor this, but I gave them the ability to make decisions without asking headquarters on spending money, on spending $5,000, on spending $10,000, on spending $20,000 to to fix uh, inefficiencies within their own operations so we could lower our cost. And that, it was a very interesting dynamic. Uh, a number of them were afraid to make the decisions once they were given the authority mm-hmm. because all of a sudden they had to take responsibility for the results of that decision. And it took me a, a couple months of encouragement and they'd still call me. You, you sure you want me to spend that money? I say you don't even have to ask me. Right. Don't ask me anymore. You know, you know, you know what's best. I don't know. And so I, I had a huge leap of faith for them. And in in a in a sense, my ability to trust in their expertise, you know, really paid great dividends. You're, you know, anybody wants everybody wants to be trusted. Everybody wants to be valued for their expertise. And if that's discounted, don't expect them to operate at a peak performance, at a peak level. But once you give them that opportunity, you know, they get a little bit of pep in their step. They get, you know, all of a sudden, hey, they, they believe in me. They trust in me. Maybe this guy knows what he's doing by, by allowing me to do what I know I can do to help the company. So, you know, in, in one small way, I spent the first couple months trying to turn the, the culture of the organization upside down from one where the headquarters dictated everything to one that – that the headquarters supported everything. You know, the, you're pre- singing music to my ears, and we've talked about this on the show for, for four and a half years, and certainly 
my corporate experience has been the same thing. And, and I say time and time again, till I'm blue in the face. And I think, and again, the biggest takeaway I got from being an officer in the military, and I think it's the biggest perception that people who aren't experienced with the military, they think it's this kind of autocratic, you know, orders come from up on high. And if you disobey, you're going to the brig. And when it's firing in all cylinders, I know it was this way in the Marine Corps, and I'm sure it was this way in the Army, is that the successful campaigns, the successful officers, the successful units had a decentralized decision-making authority process that they lived and breathed by, meaning that they pushed the decision-making authority to the absolute lowest level, where you really truly created a culture of one asking for forgiveness instead of permission, and that is so powerful. Now, to do that, to your point, the senior leadership needs to be maniacally focused on where we're going and why, and then also give them the tools, times, and, and training that they need to continue. But I, I just absolutely love what you're saying. I think that is the biggest takeaway from the difference between the military or what's perceived in the military and what, what really happens. And I think it's probably the biggest takeaway if organizations could just focus on creating that culture of asking for forgiveness and a permission, you'll start to see the results and you're proof positive. I agree a hundred percent. It's worked in every position I've been, whether it was in the military or it, me too. as I've been through my civilian career. Yeah. I just love that. It's, that's music to my ears. And again, it's just a, additional validation. To, it sounds so simple when we're sitting there talking at zero speed and to your, you know, it's a little more difficult to put in play. And even one of the things that you brought up that isn't talked about, but you're right. When you, you, you say, Hey, here's the money, here's the authority. They're still not comfortable for whatever right. reason, you know? And so you got to work through that. And so I heard you say that it took a little bit of time and effort of like, yeah, I trust you. Look, it's okay. You know, if you screw up, I got your back is what I heard you say. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah. So, um, going back to your decision of going there, you painted this picture that didn't sound very positive. And I don't know what your situation was before the position you had before. If you were looking for a job, you had a current position. I don't know if you took a pay cut or not, but it didn't, it doesn't sound like a very attractive position. What prompted you to take it? What was the driving it, factor? It's interesting. I, I came from a, a multinational company called CRH. It's one of the top building materials companies in the world. I was running their North and South American operations and had about 20,000 employees. And Five plus billion dollars in revenue at the time that I decided to take this role. And that's the only company I'd really been with since I left the Army. So I had the Army as an employer, the CRH uh, and Legacy Company as an employer, and then took the jump over here. I was 54 years old. In our industry, it, there's a significant amount of consolidation. A large amount of the cement, ready mix, aggregate, and asphalt capacity in the U.S. is owned by foreign multinationals. And they operate under holding companies and, and keep the U.S. name. So it's not apparent the ownership of these assets to the to the normal person. And there's very and because of consolidation, there's very few publicly traded U.S. domiciled material companies left. There's un, there was under ten, and and so I had the opportunity to take this position. And at at that age. One of my goals, as I had said, was either be a general or be CEO of a public company. There weren't that many opportunities available, mm. and so I jumped at the one that became available first. Um, even though it was 
was struggling, as you said. It was a it was a calculated risk, but I didn't want to get to my retirement age having passed that up and said, boy, I, I wonder what yeah. I could have done with that opportunity in the event I never had another opportunity. I did take a significant pay cut in, in guaranteed pay and took a lot of equity at risk. And it was interesting, the, the first week on the job, three days of the five days, the, the stock traded zero shares. Uh. So I'm sitting there with a large equity position that is completely illiquid. So <laughs> right. I'm saying, wow, this is great. I got, I have a lot of paper, but nobody wants it. Now, what that means when there's zero sh shares traded in a worldwide market, that means not one person wants one share of this company in the entire world on that day. Oh and so <laughs> uh, we, we slowly you know, set about to change that. Now our average trading volume is 300 some plus thousand shares a day. Uh, liquidity is up. The, we have a, a natural shareholder base now with 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 blue chip uh, mutual funds and investment managers invested in the company, as opposed to the, the distressed debt uh, shareholders that we had emerging from bankruptcy. So it's that's really nice to have too. That we're a real company again. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love I love that turnaround. What at what point did you? How long did it take? Give me some perspective. You're there in July 2011. Um, uh, when did you start seeing some positive results? Well, yeah, I started in August and the stock was at six. And like I said, it's, it's like a battleship. It doesn't turn overnight. Um, and by January 2nd, 2012, we were down at two. Wow. So today we're at 80. So from January 12 to 2017, we've gone from two to 80. I could sense that we were turning things around. Well, <laughs> I can tell you exactly. On about my second or third week on the job, one of our main bankers came in and told me they were going to put a, a turnaround specialist next to me. And I was going to have to run my decisions through him. Oh, boy. And, and, I, and I pushed back significantly and, and aggressively and said that that was not going to happen. And they told me in no uncertain terms with us busting our bank covenants, uh, that they had every right and every intention to do so. And I pushed back that much harder and said, and had a compromise that I had three months and the three months would be the first quarter of 2012 that I had to show tangible results that my efforts were, were turning the corner. So I had January, February, and March of 2012 to turn it around. Now, I had put things in place, like I said on this listening tour, and empowered employees. So we, we had a, a fairly noticeable reduction in our cost of production, in our unit cost of sales, both in ready mix and in, in aggregates because of, of that empowerment. And there was, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. The previous senior executives had really come out of the financial world, and I had come out of uh, operations. So I was kind of tuned into some low hanging fruit on yeah. just the operational side. But by the end of the first quarter of 2012, I had turned it around enough, just enough to show the bankers that uh, I knew what I was doing and that there was hope. And now there are a couple little green shoots by about March of 2012 that the economy, economy might have been stabilizing. And then I, I had time to to formulate a plan, formulate a, a long-term strategic plan. And so the culmination of, of those, the efforts to turn, to lower some costs and a really, really solid path going forward 
allowed the uh, allowed the banks to to stop breathing down my neck, and then we were then we were off to the races. So I would say by the middle of the first quarter of 2012, I knew that we were going to do good things. How much, um, or what was the biggest thing you learned from that listening tour? I love that you did that, by the way. I think I, I'm a huge advocate of that. You know, listen to the the, the, the frontline folks and, and see what's going on. Was there any big surprises, or was it what you expected? No, it was it was what I expected because I I could see I, I knew what I was looking at when I walk around plants or mm-hmm. go to aggregate facilities. And, and I would see things broken. And then I'd ask, well, why is that broken? Well, they headquarters won't authorize me the, the, the money to fix it. I said, well, you know that if, if you're running one truck to a, to a continuous process aggregate plant and that plant keeps running and it's running empty three quarters of the time because the truck has to go get another load of rock to put in there, you know, you're working at like 25% efficiency. They said, well, we know, but they won't let us fix our trucks. So all I had to do was say, go fix your trucks. And all of a sudden, voila, you know, efficiency jumped through the roof compared to what it was prior to me getting there. So it wasn't that I was learning that much, but I was, it was listening and empowering them and knowing, and knowing how to empower them. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it wasn't rocket science, but like you said earlier, some of these things seem obvious to you if you get it. But if you don't get it, it's not that obvious. Right. How about personnel-wise? Uh, rising stars that you weren't expecting, people that were there that maybe couldn't handle the new culture and left. I mean, did you experience much turnover or any surprises on that front? Yeah, the, the almost the entire staff in in Houston had turned over, and I made the I started in Houston. I moved the company to Dallas or to Euless in a year after I started. So. In, in that transition, a lot of people fell out. Now, I didn't have to really – they self-selected out. I offered everybody positions and, and people that – I'm a pretty high-energy guy and we were moving that company forward and I didn't want to – I didn't want to hear excuses. I wanted to hear – you know, I wanted to hear positive mm-hmm. new approaches and people that, that couldn't keep up or, or were just too beat down didn't, didn't follow us to Dallas, which gave me the chance – not to come in and just blow everybody out. I don't think that's a very healthy thing either. Um, but self-selection out, I think, is very healthy, and it gave me the ability to, to change over most of the senior staff. Operationally, I gave I gave some people uh, new and additional responsibility that they might have been the might not have been the the favorite choice of the previous management team for whatever reason. Uh, and I'm kind of a bootstrap guy and. And you don't necessarily have to have a college education to be a regional, you know, a regional right. senior executive. You need people around you that can help you. But if you're a good leader and you know your business, you know, you don't necessarily have to be pedigreed in in my world. And so some guys got uh, got extra opportunities because of that. Uh, that's refreshing to hear, too. And what about um, what about intentional intentionality behind leadership development? Is there some intentionality behind it or is it just, are you just so focused on the empowerment of the operations and it kind of takes care of itself? No, it's a combination. We, we look for high, high performing young individuals and try to give them stretch assignments, try to give them additional opportunities within our, our trade associations. In, in our in our business, the Trade Association, National Ready Mix Concrete Association, and National Stone, Sand, and Gravel Association have lots of opportunities for leadership development, for networking, for professional development, and 
and for us as a company or senior managers to pick out some young people and say, I want you to go to all those meetings. I want, you know, around the country, you need to take three days out and go there. Uh, you know, that identification early and letting them grow within that, that's uh, a very a, a very basic part of, of keeping people empowered and keeping them motivated and improving their leadership and uh, technical abilities. So we use that method. We do a lot of training through uh, um, different different sources of uh, negotiating training. For instance, I use I use the West Point Thayer Leadership Development Group for senior executives. Mm-hmm. They go they go to the military academy for a three day pretty intensive uh, leadership training academy experience run by ex West Point uh, instructors and and high ranking officers. And so I find that very, uh, very effective as well. I don't participate in that because being a graduate, I don't want to be the, the focus of, right. of my group. So I, I let them go off and do that without me being present because I don't want that. I don't want myself to influence the dynamics there. But we're, we're very progressive in, in additional leadership training. Uh, that's refreshing to hear, too. It just sounds like an exciting place to work. How, what advice would you give? those kind of mid-level managers or people aspiring for leadership roles, and they're in a, a, a culture that is somewhat dysfunctional. Say the senior leadership doesn't get it. Now, I know you're at the top there, but what would you say? A lot of times I get asked this probably most often is, what do I do if my boss doesn't get it? What, what yeah, advice would you give? Yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult situation to be in at times. Because if you go around your boss, you do it at your, at your own peril, obviously. Right. Um, at, at some point, you, you you have to work harder than everybody. You have to work harder than everybody else. You, you have to always be positive, even in the face of some things that, that you're not happy with. You have to maintain a positive attitude. Um, you, you try to get explanations for if, if you're being blocked on a good idea, make sure that that – it, at least you you try to get the blocker, and if it's your boss, explain his decision to you. And and at some point, if it's intractable, uh, if it if the company is big enough, seek out other opportunities within the company. And if it you know push comes to shove, you need to move and find a better environment yeah. because you won't be successful there. You won't be happy. You might be blocked in that position for a number of years. And uh, you know there. There's too many good companies out there, and life's too short to stay in a position that you're unhappy with, or that you're finding yourself stifled. Uh, at, at some point, you might have to say, "I've I've got to find something else." But in but in all cases, you never burn a bridge, no matter how bad that situation is. These in- industries, if you stay in some of these industries, at some point, everybody knows everybody, and you can never burn any bridges. So even in the face of the of the worst adversity, you have to keep a positive external spirit. What you say when you get home? Behind closed doors, that's, yeah, that's, where right. out, that's where your outlet is, but not to your coworkers. Yeah, great advice. And I, I would say too, yeah, you know, bitching around the water cooler isn't isn't an option. No. And so you can either leave, or if you want to try it, give it a go. You're right. Keep that positivity. Never um, disparage or badmouth. Be positive, as right. tough as it is. But I, and I also think too, is if you invest, if you got the dysfunctional leader, because a lot of times the dysfunction comes. I find from some insecurity or, you know, and even if it's an inflated ego or there's always some sort of lack, a feeling of lack or insecurity behind it. So if you can augment that leader in some capacity, as painful as that may sound, 
um, you might be surprised by the results because I've, I've seen that happen in real situations where, okay, I disagree. This, this person's kind of a jackass, but I'm going to invest professionally into this individual and try to add value to them. Um, and I found that a lot of times that opens up some unique opportunities and, um, and breaks down some barriers that, that were there previous. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I think that's very sound advice. And, but yeah, you have to look, you, you have to do that in an intelligent fashion. Yeah. So you, you don't look like you're just sucking up to exactly. the boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, that's why leadership is so difficult. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, man, I just love your story. I love, you know, every time I talk to a CEO like yourself and we've had plenty of examples here on the show and this is just one of many and there like you said there's some great organizations of individuals who who get it and uh, and I just it, it makes me happy it reinforces um that leadership is the answer to all of this and I know that's a blanket statement and there's a lot more um grit and grime and blood sweat and tears involved in that statement than than it may seem on the surface but it's easy to understand, difficult to put in play sometimes, but the fundamentals are so basic to understand. The listening, the 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 empowering, the decentralized decision making, the having your you know allowing them to make mistakes as long as they're you know legitimate mistakes and, and the and the decisions were made in the best interest of the company with the information at the time. All that stuff is so basic and common sense, but man, it takes a lot of work to put it in play. Yeah, it does. You know, in the in the final analysis. The one true litmus test, if you're really a critical thinker and really honest with yourself, you have to ask yourself, and it, it's a cliche, but would I want to work for me? Right. And, and if you ask that in all fairness, and you, you, you really want the answer to be yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What's next for, uh, for uh, U.S. Concrete? When, what, what's, what's down the road? Uh, we we have a lot of opportunities right now. We're we're still very bullish on the economy. We think that the the construction cycle still has legs. The employment numbers came out today very good. If there's additional tax reform and if if GDP can get up to three or three and a half percent, you know we we have a long runway. And with the aging infrastructure, we we build we supply materials to roads and highways and bridges and airports. If there is some additional infrastructure money which is woefully needed uh we have a we have a really good long runway here to continue to grow our company well i'm excited for your future and, and bill i mean i love the turnaround story i love your philosophy i love the way you look at uh, life and leadership and it's no wonder you guys have have turned it around and i really appreciate you coming on the show how can people get in touch with you and learn more about u.s concrete well, they can come to our website. It's at usconcrete.com, us-concrete.com. And uh, we have a lot of information there. We operate primarily in the New York City uh, area, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, Washington, D.C., and the Bay Area of San Francisco, San Jose. So we're not everywhere, but we're really big players in the cities I just mentioned. Exciting times, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show, and I'm proud to have you in the Dose of Leadership Drive. I look forward to uh, staying in touch. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Richard. Uh, very nice interview today. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and fill out the contact page and reach out to me. Let me know where you're at your leadership journey. Also, if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader, go to legacyleaderblueprint.com. 
fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access, exclusive access to my online leadership course. That's LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com. Hope to see you on the inside. Thanks for tuning into the show.